Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. Amen. Hey guys, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but we have a real special guest. First time ever in a church service, and that is one of my newest grandbabies, Miss Haven Joy, is here on the front row this morning, and so, J.O., we're excited that you and little Miss Haven are here. Won't y'all welcome little Haven in church today? Amen. We're grateful. We're grateful. Amen. If you have not seen Miss Haven or any of the other precious babies running around, Sarah, uh, man, I just want you to know, man, nursery workers... Or, or, uh, I'm telling you, man, if you want a place to serve in our church, I promise you will be a blessing. See Sarah to work in our nursery because it is growing. Uh, we're going to grow the church one way or another, amen? Uh, we're going we're gonna to get after it, man. So thankful to be here today, uh, man, to get to join back in part two of a message that we started last week. Again, I want to remind you just personally uh, that there is a... Anybody that's interested in going to the Dominican Republic, there's a, a meeting on March the 19th. Uh, we'll meet right here in the auditorium right after the service. That trip will probably be July the 17th through the 23rd. It's a Monday through a Sunday. Um, and the cost of that will probably be somewhere between $1,600 and $1,900 is probably what we're thinking. Uh, but anyway, um, and if you're just at all even interested uh, please, please come, and uh, we'll, we'll kind of fill you in on what we've been doing. Uh, that being said, uh, we were talking about incentives last week. Anybody remember that? Okay. Okay, I'm, I'm just checking. Because <laughs> I can start all the way over, and we just keep doing it. <laughs> we have a few things about incentives. You know, an incentive is a thing that motivates you or encourages you to do something. Uh, one of the men in my life had a look that he gave me, and that was incentive to straighten up. Because <laughs> if that look, I didn't do what I was supposed to, he had another thing to help me. He would apply the rod of instruction uh, to the seat of my britches. And I'm telling you, I learned quick. Um, you know, thinking about incentive this week, uh, because I've been in the hospital visiting some folks uh, that really, some of them don't go to our church. And sometimes people ask me, who's interested? Sometimes just people that we know, friends, or people from the community. Uh, but, but I was in the hospital, and uh, I, am, I promise you, folks, I am not slamming you if this is a, a habit that you struggle with. I promise you. It's not, not what I'm going after. But, but I'm there, and there's a security guard there, and he works in the emergency room. And I'm walking into the hospital, and he's coming out, and he's just hacking, and he's coughing, and... I'm like, hey, man, you all right? He's like, yeah. He's like, man, I got to quit this habit. And I'm like, well, what habit is that? He's like, man, I'm out here on another smoke break, and this is going to kill me. And I'm like, well, that ought to be an incentive to stop. But I've got habits. Trust me. My doctor says if I don't get my cholesterol under control, I'm going to die. And I'm like, well, that's an incentive. But just like my friend likes his tobacco, I like my French fries. 
So I can't look down on him, you know? I mean, I wish that was incentive enough, but somehow even waving a flag over said, we're going to die, sometimes that's not incentive enough. Uh, man, and, and again, if, if you happen to work in a factory, my next statement is not a, a, a dig on that. I live in a, I was raised in a little town in, in Galax, Virginia. It's in the Blue Ridge Mountains where Tennessee and West Virginia and North Carolina, all them kind of come together in the beautiful, beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains. And uh, man, my, my town is smaller than LaGrange. And uh, we are known, we have a big river, a huge river that goes through the uh, town. And, and there's just factories that are based there on the river. Uh, we make a lot of furniture and glass in my hometown. Matter of fact, a lot of your stuff that you see here was manufactured in my town and shipped here. And um, I just knew, uh, I mean, I was the, the second person in my entire family to ever make it past the sixth grade. And uh, I knew that unless I went into the Army and got the GI Bill to go to college, that my life was destined to work in that factory. And I'm just telling you, that was incredible incentive to go to the Army. That was incredible incentive to go get my college degree because I did not want to work in that factory. I seen what it did to my family. Uh, most of my family died in their 40s because there's a lot of coal uh, stuff there, and y'all know the coal miners and the black lung, and I'm just telling you something I didn't want to do. Y'all hey, remember last week I told you about this man that was lying on the operating table, and his son was the surgeon. Y'all remember that? And I told you that he, he said to his son, he said, hey, son, uh, if you don't get this right, and, and, and I die on the table, just know your mama's coming to live with you. And, and that, that'll, that's an incentive, man, to get that surgery right. I, I bet he performed that one right. Uh, you're saying, Pastor, again, where you at? Well, I'm telling you, last week we talked about that Paul is giving incentives to us, right? Uh, Paul, Paul's saying, hey, listen, here, here's, here's something that ought to motivate you and encourage you to follow Christ with all that you have. That, that's, what he, that's what he's really doing. And he's using the, the resurrection as one of the greatest incentives that we have to live the Christian life. And so we looked in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We started in verse 29, and we only made it through a couple of verses there. Some super difficult verses, if you'll remember that. I'll kind of give you a little bit of a review, uh, but then we're going to bring up some new material. But what we want to do is we want to turn our attention to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 29 through 34, and what we want to do is look at these incentives that the resurrection offers us. And so, man, I'm just going to begin reading uh, in verse 29. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there should be some in the seats, underneath the seats, kind of around you. Um, man, and, and those are our gift in some sense to you, but Pastor Justin, who prayed for you, uh, for our offering, he, we have Bibles, like like nice Bibles to give to anyone who doesn't have a Bible. So if you need one of those, please come up to Pastor Justin or myself because we want to gift you a copy of God's Word. Man, it would just bless you. And then we'd want you to bring it with you when you come. And all you who have a copy of God's Word, or if you can see it on the screen behind me, would you stand as we read from God's Word this morning? So here's the verse, right, that we preached on last week. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? 
Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die how often? Hmm. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what, what does that profit me? I mean, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Don't be deceived. If you are, if you are below the age of 140, please pay attention. Especially you students out there, listen to me. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought. Now listen to everybody and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. Man, God, would you please bless your word and speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Here's, here's what we talked about last week. I don't know if you remember it, but we talked about that the resurrection is an incentive for embracing salvation. So there in verse 29, I'm not going to preach it all over again. I'm just going to help those of you who may be new to kind of understand. I mean, are, are, do, do we baptize people for the dead? I mean, is that what we got going on? <laughs> Like, we got our own praise band that's called the Grateful Dead, and we baptize for the dead. I mean, is that what we're doing? No, that's not what the text means. And so let me quickly just help you understand the text. I'm not going to go through it all, but basically we, we know, first of all, that, that salvation doesn't happen through proxy baptism. And so to understand what this difficult text means, we have to look at what else Scripture says so we can understand what it what it. We know what it doesn't say. So we know that no one has ever been saved because of baptism, whether somebody's alive or dead. We talked about that. The, the scripture talks about that baptism is a symbol for those who have been saved. It never saves anyone. So a proper interpretation then would help us come to that second point that we know that salvation comes through personal belief. So look in verse 29. Let me help you understand how, how the text and the rest of the Bible would help us interpret and properly with grammar studies in the Greek, how to properly kind of dissect there, verse 29. So otherwise, what will those do who are, who are saved because of the testimony of those who have died? I mean, if the testimony of those who have died and they aren't really going to ever be raised, why then would people be saved because of their testimony? In other words, people were coming to Christ because of the way they saw Christians being martyred. They saw people being persecuted. you got to remember that in Corinth, this is a, a very wicked city. And there were people coming to faith because they watched Christians, the way they died and the way they held on to their faith, listen, you may kill me, but I'm going to rise again. And people were being, like when people would see that, they would come to Christ. In other words, they would be saved and automatically in the early church to be saved, somebody was baptized immediately. And so Paul was using those terms synonymously, baptism and salvation. And to be honest with you, Anybody who's really come to know Jesus Christ wouldn't have a problem being baptized. 
And so Paul says there that, that salvation really comes only through personal belief. It doesn't come through proxy baptism. You can never be saved because of what somebody else has done for you or would do for you in a spiritual way except for Jesus Christ. That's it. So Paul says, hey, man, the, the resurrection is the incentive that these people have embraced salvation, and it's the same. And I talked about my mom. If you'll remember, that's how my, my mom came to Christ. And after the service like, well, last week, three of you came up to me and said, Pastor, it was because I watched how somebody died, and their, their faith in Jesus on their deathbed is why I came to Christ. The resurrection is still, still an, an incentive for embracing salvation, but Today, we've got to move on, and we've got to do some new material here. So here's the second thing. Resurrection is an incentive for enduring suffering. Well, that'll bless your heart. Come to church and say, well, hey, you know, pastor, we're looking for a reason to suffer. That's, that's what we want to do. Well, we've got to look at the text. Verse 30, he says this, Why are we also in danger every hour? And I affirm them, brethren, by the boasting in which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? I mean, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If there's no bodily resurrection, this is what Paul's saying, if there's, no, if there's no bodily resurrection, then there is no incentive for enduring some of the things that we do because we believe that Christ rose from the dead. So Paul's teaching us that, A, we can face ever-present danger. He basically says this. He says, why do we go through jeopardy every hour? He says, look, if there's no resurrection, then why am I going through what I go through as the apostle? I mean, what am I, Paul is saying? Some kind of person who enjoys pain and suffering? I mean, I think Paul is teaching us that if you remove the hope of the resurrection, you remove the incentive for suffering because of Christ. Why? Because one of the things that makes people willing to suffer, willing to endure, willing to go through all kinds of hardship to do the work of Christ at any cost, one of the reasons that makes that possible is that they know that someday they will be rewarded for what they did for Christ. That someday there's going to be fruit in the heaven that they're going to see. That, that Jesus said that that fruit would remain. That someday they're going to stand before Jesus and they're going to, he's going to say, man, hey, listen, here I am. And Jesus, I gave it the best I had. And they're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That's why some people suffer. Listen, if there's nothing more, if we just have our spirits float off and get absorbed into some kind of eternal mist... And we aren't going to know who we're going to be. And, and we don't even think there's anything else after the grave. And there is no resurrection. Like some were saying there in the Corinthian church, then there's no reason to make any kind of sacrifices here. I mean, this is all I've got. This is, this is all there is, you know, right? So I'm going to string it all out. I'm going to live as long as I can. And I'm going to make sure, make sure whatever I do, I'm not going to live a sacrificial life. I'm not going to give my life up for the church or for Christ or for anything related to that and just dying off into blackness ever if there isn't a resurrection. I mean, service and suffering is predicated on the fact that there is a resurrection, we are willing to suffer because we see that ahead. I mean, I was watching a fight the other night on TV, and, and it was these two guys, I mean, they were going at it. I'm talking about like they were beating the snot out of each other. It was 
wow, it was, it was, it was vicious. And this was just boxing, man. And I was like, wow, they, they were mad at each other. And I was thinking, why are these two grown men beating each other up and enduring all that agony? Why are they doing that? Because somebody's going to get a belt after that's over. I mean, nobody's willingly going to go into the ring and get that kind of stuff if there's not like millions of dollars on the line. (laughs) Nobody's going to do that. You take that away, there's no incentive to get in the ring. The same is true for the Christian life. You remove all the glory, you remove the reward, you remove eternal consequences, you remove the victory, and nobody's going to bother with this thing. Paul says every hour he was in danger. Why would anyone willingly put themselves in harm's way every hour of their life if there wasn't something to look forward to when they died? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 28, he says this, Are they servants of Christ? I'm speaking as if insane. I more so in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day have I spent adrift at sea. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, danger from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such eternal things, there is a daily pressure of me of concern for all the churches. So brothers and sisters, if there is no resurrection, Paul is insane. That's what he's saying. That because there is a resurrection, you and I can face everyday dangers. We can go to the Dominican Republic and put ourselves in harm's way because no matter what happens to us, there is a resurrection. We can go minister in places where people would say, you're going to get killed down there. Why? Because why? Because there is a resurrection. It's worth it. Then we also can face ever-present death. Verse 31, Paul says, I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, not only am I facing danger every hour, but I die daily. So does Paul mean that he really dies? Is that literal? Are we supposed to take that literal? Y'all know that common sense just tells you the brother had, he ain't not like a cat. Like nine lives. So what is he saying? Paul, listen to this. This is interesting in the Greek. Paul literally says in the Greek, I swear, I swear this to you. At the end of the verse, the verse really says, I swear that I die daily. That's what he's saying. And he's not talking about some spiritual crucifixion of himself. This is not dying daily in terms of devotion to Christ. He's literally saying, I swear that every day I'm one step away from dying physically. And he's not making an exaggeration. He swears it in the Greek. It's interesting to me that he would be so vehement as to take an oath about this. Because the term I swear, which your Bible Bible may say, I protest, 
or my Bible says, I affirm. That's the words for I swear. He wants to really make his point, and he swears. And it's interesting the way he does it. And after studying this, it may help if I offer this paraphrase. Maybe it could be read this way. I swear by the pride I have in you in Christ. In other words, I swear it by the pride I have in you in Christ. What does that mean? Well, to swear something means that you're willing to forfeit that something if that word isn't true. So he's really making an equalization. So let me help you with what I'm really trying to say. This is kind of hard to understand. But it's a Hebrewism that we can't translate in our language. So what he's really saying is, and this is my attempt at this, as true as it is, so true this is. So as true as this is, so true this is. As true as it is that I'm proud of what Christ has done in you, it's how true it is that I die daily. And we know that Paul was always affirming them throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians. He's saying, listen, I see God at work in you. I, I see it. I testified to it. You see it. I know it. Just as that's true, I swear to you, just as that's true, I die daily. That's what he's saying. So Paul would say then, don't talk to me about there being no resurrection. Verse 32, he says, because if from human motives, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. If there's no resurrection, what would that have profited me? I mean, why would I be willing to be thrown into the, the ring with these lions that would devour people? Why would I be just thrown into like Nero would do and just take Christians and coat them in pitch and tar and put animal skins on them and just throw them out places for wild animals to just devour them. Paul's saying, why, why would I do that if I could just simply say, I don't really believe there's a resurrection? If, I mean, that's all he had to do, just deny Christ a little bit and say, yeah, this is kind of wishful thinking. Paul's saying, if from human motives, man, that wouldn't profit me anything to believe in a lie. Paul put his life on the line every day, every day. When he came to the end of his life, Paul said, I fought the good fight. Every day, every day, read 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and see all the things he says there. He says there in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it won't be on the screen, but, but he says this, we're troubled yet not distressed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not forsaken, cast down but not destroyed, always, always bearing in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, this guy went from opportunity to die to opportunity to die every single day of his life. And Paul knew that only one kind of ministry, and he only knew the ministry of confrontation. And he slammed up against the system every single day of his life, and it generated antagonism, and people tried to kill him every single day. So Paul's saying, don't come to me and tell me that I've just been doing this for this life alone. That's no way to live. That's insanity. When somebody says, hey, Paul, there isn't really any resurrection like they were saying here, Paul said, listen, I'm way too deep into it to believe your lie. So then 32, he says, well, what about this fighting beast at Ephesus? Some say those couldn't have been real beasts because Paul was a Roman citizen, and Roman citizens couldn't have suffered that way in that kind of a situation. Uh, Paul would have never had a Roman citizen be thrown into that to begin with. Well, Paul's Roman citizenship didn't get him out of some things. We see that through the scripture. 
And I'm telling you, it didn't get him out of this one. Those people would have figured that if beast would eat him, then who's going to protest? Who's going to write to Rome and and tell them? (laughs) You shouldn't shouldn't let those beasts eat Paul. Who who would do that for Paul? Nobody's going to do that. So I don't know. Some say now this is a wild beast. Maybe it's a metaphor. Maybe Paul didn't really, wasn't really eaten by wild beasts or tried to be eaten by wild beasts. Maybe it refers back to the, the hand of the angry mob there in, in Acts chapter 19. I'm just telling you, man, I think Paul meant what Paul said. He was really thrown into this, this arena with these wild beasts and he had to wrestle. And just like God saved Daniel in the lion's den, God saved Paul. I just think it's something else in the scriptures that's miraculous. And so at the end of the verse, he says, look, if the dead don't rise, then let's just eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. I mean, folks, let's not get all bogged down in all this kind of stuff. Let's just live out our sensual flesh. Let's just, let's just live the way we want. Let's just eat all we want to do. Let's just drink all we want to do. Let's just have all the parties we want to do. Let's grab all we can, grab it all, just live it out, just, just do it all, do everything you can think of and imagine, just go for it and then just die. By the way, that's not anything new. You know that. Because Paul's directly quoting from Isaiah 22, 13 here. And it's the people with no resurrection hope. That's the way people in our world that have no belief in the resurrection, that's the way they live. That is the United States of America in a nutshell. I mean, if there is no resurrection, if there's no, no faith, let's just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. I mean, right here in Fayette County, that, y'all know this. It is the alcohol capital of Texas. Y'all know this right here. And so that's what people do, right? If you don't believe in Christ in the church, let's just go get drunk and eat it up and do what we got to do because we're going to die. We must have fun until we do. That's our society, isn't it? I mean, that's what Solomon said. Read Ecclesiastes. He keeps saying it over and over again. I could see nothing better under the sun than to eat and drink and do what you want and have fun and rejoice and then die. I mean, if there is no resurrection, why would I go about and give my life as a sacrifice and put myself in danger for the cause of Christ if I'm never going to rise from the grave? I mean, if there are no consequences to all this stuff, classic literature is full of this kind of thought. Herodotus, the Greek historian, tells of one of the customs of the Egyptians. He says that in social meetings among the rich, when the banquet that they were feeding their people was over, a servant would carry a coffin around to the guests And in the coffin was a wooden image of a corpse carved out and painted to resemble a dead person as nearly as possible. And the servant would show that that carved out thing in this coffin to all the guests. And then the host would say, gaze here, drink and be merry, because when you die, this is what you're going to look like. (laughs) Well, that's a great way to end a party. I mean, that's a buzz killer for sure. But it's kind of a great way to get a party going, too. Because <laughs> if you really believe that, you're going to party. <laughs> but the Christian life, with its challenges and dangers and the investment of life and throwing away is absolutely useless if there's no eternal fruit. The dear precious, precious saints in the 11th chapter of Hebrews who invested their lives in the kingdom of God at the cost of their own lives, just listen, Hebrews 11, 32 through 38. Listen, just listen. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, 
and David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, edged, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to fight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mocking and flogging and further change and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were, they were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, people of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts on mountains, sheltering in caves and holes in the ground. So then why? Why would they do that? Well, the text tells us itself that they might obtain a better resurrection. I mean, you take away the resurrection, there's no incentive for any of that kind of things that they, those people did. I mean, even our Lord Jesus in chapter 12, which follows up there in Hebrews, it says, it says this, and Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. I mean, Jesus himself even knew this. Why would he be willing to die for us if he himself wasn't going to be raised? You see, it was anticipation of the resurrection glory that caused Christ to endure the cross. It's a great principle. If there is no resurrection, there's no motive to endure suffering. And I'm sure you'd agree with me that nothing short of the confidence of resurrection hope would have ever allowed Stephen to lay down beneath the stones while his life was being crushed out and ask for forgiveness of those who did it to him. Nothing less than resurrection hope could have allowed, as tradition tells us, Andrew to be crucified by being tied to a cross and left there for days until he was dead. Nothing less than resurrection hope would have led Peter to live out his life for Christ, finally to be crucified upside down, as tradition tells us. I mean, if Peter didn't believe that, why would he do that? Because Peter was looking for well done, good and faithful servant. I'm sure that nothing but resurrection hope would have allowed the Apostle Paul to give his life continually. And finally, finally, you might not know this, but church history tells us that Paul had his head severed off of his body for believing in Jesus Christ. Nothing less than resurrection hope would make anybody do that. Because Paul did it with absolute faith that he would see Jesus Christ again, that he would see the people he loved, he would see the people that he won to Christ, and he would be a part of the redeemed community of Christ forever and ever. It was that kind of hope that gave the incentive for people to suffer, and it's that kind of hope that gives us the endurance to suffer today. So students, listen to me. Please pay attention to me. It is worth being made fun of to live for Jesus on your campus. It is worth being the stick in the mud that just sticks out and be made fun of and humiliated. It is a great thing to still be a virgin when you graduate. It is a great thing not to get caught up in what this world is selling you. You don't have to do drugs. You don't have to be on social media. You don't have to dishonor your mother and father. You can live a clean, pure Christian life. Listen, because you will be persecuted if you do that, but Jesus has got something better. You can do it, and it's worth it, I promise you. You're willing to trade a few likes and being popular by a few people 
and losing some rewards that you could have forever for a few years in high school? Think about it. Hey, at work, it's okay to lose your job because you won't compromise your Christian faith. It's okay not to tell the the crazy jokes that they tell at work. It's okay to talk about Jesus like he's your best friend at work and be made fun of. It's worth it. You can endure it. It's worth it to go to a foreign country. It's worth it to go across the street and tell your neighbor, hey, listen, we're having an Easter service and all that's in me wants you to come because I need you to know that my Jesus loves you. And for that neighbor to slam the door in your face and cuss you out and say, get off my property. It's worth it, I promise you. Because you can endure suffering because there is a resurrection promise. We can face death and danger and persecution and being made fun of because of the resurrection. So the resurrection is an incentive for embracing salvation. It's an incentive for enduring suffering. And very quickly, the resurrection is an incentive for engaging sanctification. For engaging sanctification, because look there in verse 32, he says this, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And here it comes, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Be sober-minded as you are and stop sinning. For I'm some no knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. Paul tells us that the resurrection is really what draws our hearts to holiness. It's the incentive that I have for becoming more like Jesus and living righteously. If you remove the resurrection, you remove the reason you and I will do whatever we've got to do to be holy. So how do we really go about engaging this sanctification? Well, a couple of ways Paul tells us here in our text. First of all, we focus on the right principles. Focus on the right principles. There in verse 32, he says it, man, if the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. That's the mindset that says this. Get all you can while you can, and then you're going to kick the can. That's basically, that's a hillbilly paraphrase. That's, that's a Steve Brown paraphrase right there. Get all you can while you can because you're going to kick the can. The mindset simply denies that there's life after death or that there will be consequences or rewards after we die. And it's the world's principle for living. If death is the end, Paul says, then get as much as you can out of life as possible. But you and I know there's a resurrection. There is a judgment seat of Christ for believers, and there's a great white throne judgment for unbelievers. So because of the resurrection, you and I can focus on the right principle that says there is something coming. Then we can also, secondly, fellowship with the right people. Verse 33, he says this, don't be deceived because bad company corrupts good morals. Again, we've talked about this here, but what you believe determines how you behave. You will become what you behold. Whatever awe strikes you or whatever you're chasing after, that's what you're going to become like. I promise you. You become, listen, listen to me, you become like the company you keep. Hillbilly paraphrase. If you don't want to get fleas, don't run with dogs. You're going to become like who you hang out. I promise you, friends. You will quickly adapt the morals and beliefs of the people that you surround yourself with. So Paul says, don't be deceived. 
You think it's not going to happen to you. You think you're strong enough. Paul says, don't be deceived because bad company will corrupt you. It's in the present tense. So he says, stop saying, stop staying, I mean, in the deceit that you're in. Stop following this mistaken notion about there being no bodily resurrection and you've got to get rid of this heresy about the resurrection. He says, stop being deceived. You know why? Because watch, bad, and this is an interesting word, bad company, but, but follow me here. This is good. I'm going somewhere. The word company is the word homilia. It basically means association. It means evil association or bad association. But also, you know that a homily is what a pastor sometimes gives when he's given a devotion about a sermon or about a text. You've heard of homilies. So not only does it mean association with, with evil people or evil morals, but it also means to be associated or to listen to bad homilies, if you will. So in other words, it's not only what people are, it's what they're saying and teaching that will also corrupt you. So if we combine those two meanings, stop being deceived, hanging around bad people and hanging around bad people who are giving bad messages because that will corrupt you. Or just squish it all back together, bad theology corrupts good morals. The idea here is associating with somebody who has bad theology, hanging around bad teaching, bad doctrine, bad sermons, and evil association with those kind of evil people giving evil lectures will corrupt what you really believe. Verse 34, he says, some have no knowledge of God. So see, some in the church didn't truly know God and didn't know God's teaching. And so they were espousing heresy. Bad theology led to their bad behavior, just like good theology leads to good behavior. So Paul says, stop being deceived. Bad theology will corrupt your good morals. You've got to break the association with the people teaching this heresy that there is no resurrection. You can't run around with heretics without it having a corrupting influence. And I'm just going to go out on a limb here. <laughs> You've got to stop listening to Stephen Furtick. You've got to stop listening to Joe Osteen. They got some good motivation. But listen, the road to hell is paved with good motivation. You got to be careful who you're listening to. That kind of teaching takes people to hell. It's out there, it's everywhere in the church. So some people have. No knowledge of God, though the word here is not the word for mere ignorance. It's the word agnosia, which means culpable ignorance. Those who denied the resurrection were refusing to see and believe the facts of the resurrection. <laughs> In other words, they just weren't stupid. They chose to be stupid. It's like people who still think the world is flat. Brothers, Joe is in the house here. He works for NASA, and I can promise you the world from space is not flat. But it's just like people would say, well, that's a bunch of bogus nonsense. We didn't really go to the moon. Okay. 
That's what Paul's talking about. You just can be just willfully ignorant if you want to. He says that some of them were being willfully ignorant, and he says to that, I am ashamed of you. In other words, shame on you for thinking that there is no resurrection when you have seen the proof of it. Remember, they were not too far removed. They had more reasons to believe than you and I do. In other words, he's saying this, look, holiness is predicated on an association with good teaching and people who live that way. If you deny the resurrection, you are going to be removed from the incentive to following Christ. And so, you know, one of the reasons I live the way I do is because I know I'm going to stand before the Lord and give an account. I mean, right, right at the end of the, after chapter 1, the Lord had given all the instructions about the kingdom and given them everything they needed to know. And he said, now go, go to it, guys. Go get after it. And Jesus ascended into heaven, and the angel said, this same Jesus who is taken up from you shall do what? He shall come in like manner. Did you know that Jesus is coming back? But friends, when he comes back, I'm going to have to give an account. Jesus has come back to check on us, y'all. So he's saying, look, the resurrection, the confidence in that resurrection will draw your heart to holiness. So he says there in verse 34, awake to righteousness. In other words, become clear-minded, become sober-minded. Don't have bad influences on your thinking. He says, and listen, just stop sinning. <laughs> wow. But I promise you this. I don't make many promises that I can't keep. And I'm telling you, this is a promise from God's word. You will not be able to stop sinning if you don't stop hanging around people who do. You probably need some new friends if you can't get rid of some habits. I mean, I'd rather be lonely and live holy and have a bunch of friends and keep struggling with the sin. He says, stop sinning. That's a word maybe for somebody in the house today. Because I'm telling you, folks, the wages of sin is death. There is nothing good on the other end of that temptation, I promise you. Thucydides. Records how that when the deadly plague came to Athens, just, I'm going somewhere. He says, when the deadly plague came to Athens, right here in Corinth, that people committed every shameful crime and eagerly snatched at every lustful pleasure because they believed that their lives were short. And because there was no resurrection, they wouldn't have to pay for what they were doing. If you don't think that this is happening right now in the United States of America, can I just remind you of what happened in our country the past couple of years when a very bad theology started to sweep across our country and people were propagating a lot of different things and people started rioting, people started breaking into places, people started killing people, 
People started just looting stuff. People just started going crazy. You know why? Because they didn't believe they were going to be, have to pay for it. These philosophies, this thinking, this kind of teaching, forming this kind of ideology, it all leads to destructive, unholy, unrighteous living. You take away the thought of life to come, take away the thought of accountability to God, you take away the incentive then, thereby, of being, being holy. Life loses its value and even the morality, its motive. Bad theology, a theology without resurrection is a theology that doesn't know God, and that kind of theology leads to bad living. So verse 34, here again, he'll Billy paraphrase. You guys better get, better get this thing in gear. And you better wake up, right? Because Paul says, man, I'm ashamed that I have to even remind you of this. You should have known better. Proverbs 13, 20 says it this way. One who walks with wise people will what? Pay attention. What's the next part say? But a companion of fools will what? So now let me, I think somebody here accused me of this, uh, meddling. Let me go to meddling. Is the theology being taught and the music you listen to teaching you to be holy or teaching you to continue to satisfy your own personal lusts? I'm not, I'm not making a decision on what you should listen to or what you shouldn't, but I'm telling you, you better pay attention to what they're, they're singing about. What about what you're, what you're listening to just on TV. If you don't think it has a corrupting influence, friends, I'm telling you it does. What about who you're listening to through podcasts? What about who are you watching on TikTok? And you're just filling your, your minds with just stuff that's so anti-Christ, thinking it's just fun and it has no effect on you? That's like saying, man, if I go out in the sun, it's not going to burn me. Well, I tell you what I'll do. I'll put on some sunscreen, I'll put on Jesus, and I'll go out in the sun for a really long time, and I still won't get burnt. Don't work that way. You see, the resurrection has tremendous implications. If Jesus rises from the dead, if he's really alive, then we shall be also. Then there's an incentive for people to be saved because there's hope after death and there's reunion. There's incentive for people to suffer because you can throw this life away now knowing that you're going to get a better life in the life to come. There's an incentive to sanctification because morality will be honored and rewarded in the days to come. And anything less than that is shameful heresy and will corrupt the truth. So Paul says this as our band comes. Paul says, hold on to the resurrection. I remember reading this story <laughs> about this man who often walked through a cemetery on his way home. One night he was walking through the cemetery and, and, and it was dark and unaware uh, to his knowledge, a new grave had been dug right in the middle of the path that he was walking, 
And he stumbled and then fell into that new grave. We struggled to get to that grave, and it was seven feet deep, and he just struggled and struggled until finally he began to just, just give up, and he just settled down for the night in that grave. One hour later, a farmer who was out hunting for raccoons and possums came walking through the same cemetery, and he fell in the same grave. The farmer started a desperate attempt to get out, but unaware that anybody else was in the grave. Well, the first man listened to this farmer for a few minutes, and then he reached over in pitch darkness, and then this farmer put his hand on that man that was in the grave, and he says, you can't get out of here. <laughs> but let me tell you something. That man got out of that grave. <laughs> Sometimes you just need the right incentive. And I'm telling you, there was another one in the grave. And Jesus Christ went in that grave. And he tells you, you can get out too. The resurrection has some great incentives. It'll cause you to do things you never thought you'd want to do or could do. But I'm here today to tell you that you can live holy for Jesus. You can suffer for the sake of righteousness for Jesus. And you can come to Jesus knowing that he's alive. I wonder, would you stand with me as we pray? Lord, just thank you that you're coming back. Thank you that you're alive. Now I pray that you just meet people like you always do in the tenderness of your heart. That you meet them with your love and your grace, but also the deep conviction that your Holy Spirit brings on our sin. Do a work now. We pray it in Jesus' name.